You're listening to the McKinsey Podcast, featuring wide-ranging conversations on the issues that matter in business and management. Hello, and welcome to the McKinsey Podcast. I'm Diane Brady. The COVID vaccines are here, and that has been creating a lot of hope and challenges for how to make these vaccines available on an unprecedented scale. Joining me today to talk about how we can achieve this and the lessons learned so far are two McKinsey partners who've been doing a lot of work in this area. Levin van der Vieken is a senior partner in McKinsey's Geneva office. A doctor by training, he leads our social sector and our public health work in Europe. Levin, welcome. Good to be here. And Tanya Zulu-Holt is a healthcare economist and partner in the London office, where she works with donor institutions globally, including on vaccine delivery. Tanya, welcome. Thank you, Diane. So, Lieben, where are we at this stage in the distribution? So, Diane, first of all, we have to start by recognizing that there is a large number of countries who have not started vaccinations yet. Mm. And those who have started are in very different stages of the rollout. Having said that, it is clear that all countries go through roughly four phases as their systems are scaling, as their supply scales, and as their demand evolves over time. They go from an initial phase, which is really all about getting early access, early authorization, and then early supplies, often very limited, to second phase when the delivery systems are scaling, uh, often a little bit with a time lag uh, behind supplies. Then a phase where the system to vaccinate are up and running and the new innovations, including vaccination centers, et cetera, are brought online, but the supply is starting to fall short again. To then a final phase where there is a system that works very well and can scale, the supply is actually getting to to levels that are more significant, but the demand starts to be an issue. And there's only one country today, Israel, that is in that scenario. Tanya, I'll go to you in terms of um, are the challenges right now with regard to supply? Well, of course, you know, one of the questions that many people um, are asking themselves at the moment is whether there will be enough vaccines for the world. Um, And there are many unknowns. On one hand, there's a diverse group of authorized, but also pipeline vaccine products from producers from all over the world, frankly. Um, And on the other hand, there's also unknowns about the manufacturing capacity, scale up um, and scale out. Um, But if we do take a look at just this, the publicly announced capacity of all the manufacturers that have um, a vaccine authorized in at least one country, we're actually looking at enough uh, manufacturing capacity to cover roughly 85% of the world's population. And if we're adding some of the vaccines that are still in late stage uh, development, we'll actually probably get up towards uh, 100% of the global population being able to have vaccines by the end of uh, 2021. Here in the US, there's been certainly a strain of euphoria that the pandemic is almost over. And yet at the same time, Leva and I keep hearing about these new variants of the virus. How has that changed the, the scenario planning for this? Well, first of all, I think the, the arrival of new variants shouldn't surprise anybody. The viral strains have been evolving all along. Having said that, it is a very important and very urgent reminder that nobody is safe until everybody is safe. And so it does remind us that even if a country today may be protected from the devastating effects of of the COVID pandemic raging through population by vaccination, that unless everybody in the world actually achieves 
a sufficient level of protection, new variants can keep emerging. And there are scenarios where the vaccines that we currently have do not confer protection against these variants. I think also, just to, to add to Lieben's point around, you know, no one is safe until everything is safe and also put the numbers in perspective that I was just mentioning before. And um, the, the truth is that the supply picture is quite nuanced. We do know that most of the capacity have currently been contracted and reserved by a number of the high-income countries. And that means that there is a significant amount of, in particular, the low- and middle-income countries that have not yet received or or have only received very few uh, doses. So while as we, on an aggregate, might have sufficient supplies for the whole world on a country and on a per capita basis, um, the reality is much more nuanced. So, Levin, what are some of the lessons that we've learned over the past few months? First, we, we have to um, recognize that the, the scale-up, even though it has felt slow and painful in many settings, is of an unprecedented nature. And even those countries who may have started getting out of the gates a bit slower, based on certain strategic choices, certain operational challenges, most of them have actually caught up with the supply that's available to them which is an incredible achievement and the result of tens and hundreds of thousands of people working tirelessly day and night to deliver on this third major challenge of the vaccine campaign, the delivery after the discovery, the manufacturing scale-up and the, and the delivery. And as we look back, we should not forget to celebrate that the, the development of the vaccine has gone with unprecedented speed. Never before has a vaccine been developed with this speed. Never before have we had five or six candidates that actually have been approved in countries across the world. Never before have we actually seen such a manufacturing scale-up and scale-out with collaborations across the industry, collaborations across the globe. So a lot to celebrate, of course. Having said that, we also have learned, again, to appreciate how fragile all of that progress is. How, how important it is to continue to innovate the vaccine candidates in light of new variants. How fragile the global manufacturing networks really are. If we no longer ship the right input supplies and the right equipment across the world, then plants could actually come to a halt. We have learned how fragile the delivery scale-up is in cases where communications and are, are falling short and populations lose their trust in one or multiple of the vaccine candidates. So a lot to celebrate, unprecedented speed, unprecedented scale, but also a lot of examples of the fragility of, of the progress we achieved to date. Tanya, you've done a lot of work in the past around public trust. How are we doing on that front in terms of people trusting the efficacy of the vaccine and um, feeling that they want to get it? So as the vaccine has been introduced in the countries, we have typically seen that that has actually meant that the uh, willingness to take those vaccines have increased. There are a couple of outliers um, in some of the Asian countries uh, towards that. But in general, it is um, pointing in the right direction. One element is around how is the, the general, the average population thinking. But typically what we see is that there are subpopulation groups where we see patterns of much lower um, demand. And that's certainly something that we need to watch very carefully in different countries. And there are already some uh, concerning signs in certain countries around some of those subpopulations where we're seeing higher rejection rates. Levin, you know, there's so many factors that are swirling around with the decision making on this. Can you tell us about the six A's and what that does for framing the discussion? It's available, administrable, accessible, acceptable, affordable and accountable. We've spent a lot of time thinking about these 60, 70 elements that one needs to get right, and one needs to plan for those in parallel. 
first of all, you need to have the vaccines available, right? The vaccine mm -hmm. needs to be approved by the regulators and needs to be there with the right supply, which includes increasing manufacturing, the sourcing of the needles, right? It is a complex effort in its own right. The vaccine and everything else you need for the vaccination. Second step is administrable. You need to be able to actually identify the patients. You need to have the vaccination centers up and running if that's what you're going to use, or your healthcare workers trained. Thirdly, the vaccine does need to be accessible. It needs to be in the right place in the right time. And imagine some of these vaccines actually have five doses in one vial. That actually means you need to be able to have the right strategy and the right logistics to have the five vaccinations lined up in the course of a couple of hours, right? How do you do that? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Fourthly, it needs to be acceptable. The population needs to be ready. Your healthcare workforce needs to be trained. People need to be ready to actually receive the vaccination with excitement. Fifthly, affordable. It is important that there is no barriers in affordability to ensure the equitable access to the, to the vaccine. And lastly, what we'd call accountable, which is a fairly broad bucket. You both come at it from a, a different prism as well. You as a doctor, Levin. Tanya, you as well as an economist. Tanya, you have a lot of experience in this area. Are there lessons that we can draw from you know, previous situations with regard to administering vaccines? How do you make it acceptable to everybody? This is an incredibly uh, important uh, topic that has been discussed for, for many years. And we can go back in the US all the way back to kind of 1950s um, when the polio vaccination campaigns was underway. Uh, at the time, you know, you had uh, Elvis Presley literally going on national TV in order to, <laughs> <laughs> in order to motivate some of the yoga. We need an Elvis. <laughs> Exactly. It's clear that the, the communication absolutely needs to be um, proactive. This is not something that governments can leave to the end. They need to think about it up front. It's also important that the communication is really a two-way process. So it needs to be equal, you know, uh, listening and telling at the same time. They also, you know, we know that knowledge isn't, um, it's important, but it's not sufficient. We'll need to understand different micro segments of the population to truly see what is driving the, the behaviors and what will ultimately drive people's choices. We'll need to really use all the various communication tools that are available to us, everything from the more classic public health campaigns to using social media and, and other tools that are available to us now. And, and I think building on that, Tanya, the initial months of, of vaccine rollout have, have just reinforced how critically important communication and engagement is. Communication, first of all, between all of those involved in the response and in the vaccination scale-up. And we actually have unfortunately seen quite a few instances where different parts of the system that is trying to drive the vaccination are pointing fingers at each other, are not necessarily always putting, putting the system and the acceleration first. Very understandably because of the pressure, but it actually slows down the vaccination. The second challenge that we've seen is communication with sort of the broader set of, of stakeholders, right? Communication with healthcare professionals, communication with, with influencers, communication with the media, right? Where, where it's so important that there continues to be a dialogue of trust where everybody can get access to transparent data, can access, get, can access to the right information. And then thirdly, communication with the broader public. And there's not that many environments today where governments or health authorities have actually direct access, have actually a trusted-based uh, channel to engage with, with populations. And, and we see when there is a certain narrative developing a country that needs to be engaged on, that these governments struggle with that. So we would continue to urge everybody involved in scaling the vaccine delivery to invest heavily into the communication within the people who plan and who, who structure the delivery, then with the broader stakeholder landscape, including the healthcare delivery colleagues, and then with the broader population at large. That is going to be so important in bringing this, this journey home. 
Yes, um, absolutely. And not only have the lessons been taken to heart, but I think the, the systems are really realizing that it's an ongoing um, exercise. These campaigns will be in many countries going on for the whole of 2021 and in some countries likely in towards 2022 and that the situation uh, continues to change. And so you, you're never done <laughs> with this six days. So to say you constantly need to redo your plans uh, every time there is a a new development. Um, and I think we should continue to expect that there are developments, whether those are new variants or whether those are new demand patterns or new vaccines that are being authorized and coming in. The systems will continue to go through updating their plans using uh, the equivalent of a 6A framework. The, the one thing which is happening today at the same way it always is in these moments of crisis and, and epidemic or pandemic outbreaks that there is very little time available to look around the corner. And so, of course, nobody has a crystal ball, but there is a number of scenarios that one can already imagine today, which may have major implications for tomorrow. For example, it is possible that in a couple of months, we'll not just be talking about managing a supply chain of two or three different vaccines in a given commu community, but actually managing two or three different vaccines, maybe four or five, with a subset of those actually being better suited for certain variants. How do you think about that? What is your vaccination strategy in that environment? But also logistically, how do you keep track and how do you actually optimize and, and adjust your supply chain, your communication activities, your data gathering to a significantly increase in the complexity of the available vaccines that you're using in the context of some of these variant vaccines? That is a scenario which is actually not unlikely given what we know today, but that is a scenario for which not all systems actually have the bandwidth today to start planning. Uh, Lieben raises a good point, Tanya. Uh, it would seem that you'd have to have a very sophisticated degree of data analytics and technology in place to really manage this rollout. Uh, how is this happening in economies that may not be at that point? Well, I think what's interesting around some of the low and, uh, and middle income countries is, you know, unlike some of the high income countries that have uh, historically had strong flu vaccination programs where they haven't experienced leads reaching the adult population in many of the low and middle income countries, uh, they have experienced uh, predominantly with the, the children immunization programs. So you can say on one hand, these countries have a, a, a relatively strong starting point, actually, uh, with some uh, healthcare infrastructure in terms of cold chain and people who have experience with vaccination and so forth. But of course, they don't have the uh, experience as such reaching the adult population. And secondly, in some of the low and middle income countries, it's also where today we have uh, most of the vaccine preventable death, meaning that many of those countries are not sufficiently reaching the population with the children immunization program. And so as we as we get to a point where these countries need to scale up beyond the, let's call it the first 3%, which are typical healthcare workers and the most vulnerable population and people within the urban centers. And I think we should expect that these countries are going to have some uh, scale up challenges going to the rural populations and going to reach beyond the, the first uh, sort of um, three to 20 percent uh, or so forth. Um, and those relates to one, having sufficient cold chain equipment to making sure that they train enough healthcare workers, and um, three, having the required data systems so that they can record on a live basis the different vaccination, being able to know 
which patients got what vaccine. So then people come back for the second dose that some of the vaccines uh, will require that we make sure that the person get the same uh, vaccine for the second dose and they are called back into the system in a timely manner. These are, of course, all things that in high income countries to a large extent are being done and managed with fairly sophisticated uh, data and information system. We are seeing that uh, low and middle income countries are rapidly investing and investing into those systems and scaling them up. And hopefully, you know, they'll do that in a timely manner, not just for the impact of this current pandemic, but also for the general humanization systems in these countries that are still at times lagging behind from a coverage perspective. One of the challenges, it seems, in this campaign is that the we have multiple vaccines. And how are the gatekeepers managing that, Lieben? It is indeed become a very complex landscape because there's a range of vaccines. There may be a set of vaccines that have higher efficacy against certain variants. Decision makers do start most often in my conversations with them from the perspective, does the vaccine confers protection against severe disease or, or death? And actually, we have seen that the protection against severe disease for a number of the vaccines is actually higher than the protection against overall disease. And so, yes, there may be settings in which these vaccines do no longer offer sort of the 98% protection that perhaps was found in some of the clinical trials, even though actually there is, of course, confirmation of that also in, in the real-world real world setting. These vaccines often continue to be incredibly important life-saving uh, interventions, in spite of what perhaps may sometimes be the narrative. Let's not forget, before this all started in October, November, the world was planning for a 50% efficacy or impact on severe disease of the vaccines. The world was planning to celebrate 50% as efficacious and as something that should absolutely be recommended. So we may have gotten a bit spoiled with the incredible and honestly beyond expectation results of the first vaccines. Of course, having said that, now that we have these vaccines that are of very high efficacy uh, and uncomfortable protection, I think everybody does want to continue to get access to the vaccine that is most suited to, to, to their environment. And that will continue to be a journey. It will be continue to be a journey of, first of all, actually understanding much better what is the viral strain that is circulating. We call the British variant the British variant, the South Africa variant, the South Africa variant in the late conversations. Who knows whether that is where these variants originated? Our ability to detect variants of the vaccine is still very, very low. Our surveillance systems are still very, very weak. And so the first thing we need to do is we need to really deepen our understanding of the circulating viral strains and detect new ones. And then indeed, there is an exercise to match the vaccine candidate with the optimal uh, environment in which to use it. I have to say there is a scenario because today it's all about access to a vaccine, not yet about access to the vaccine that is most suited for that environment. But in the next couple of months, we may see that dialogue shift. That's also very interesting, isn't it, Levin? Because if you kind of play that out, that could even mean that maybe countries will need to change, like exchange vaccines with each other um, so that they get access to the, the vaccine that's the most suitable for the variants that might be um, at higher circulation in their particular geography. So I think the other thing, uh, Diane, here is really increased collaboration is going to be critical to, to moving the world forward, both in terms of the vaccines, but we're also seeing, you know, people want to think about when they can start traveling again and everything and vaccine um, certification documents and so forth. And, and these things are, of course, only as valuable as other countries are accepting 
the documentation that you're able to put together for your vaccinated population. So I think we're also moving or continuing to move into a, a phase of um, increased collaboration so that the, the countries can solve the pandemic together. I totally agree, Tanya. And, and that points back to the old challenge, which, which we've discussed a few times, which is this incredible tension between optimizing for the best use of an individual vaccine dose and actually getting the biggest benefit across the world and actually trying to complete vaccination in individual countries, which is an incredible tension to, to work with. Because on one hand, we actually see incredible progress, right? COVAX has brought vaccines to a larger number of countries much, much faster and is scaling much, much faster than the closest historic precedent, the H1N1 campaigns, was mm. ever able to do, which is yeah. fantastic. But at the same time, we actually do see countries who do not have access yet. And we do see continued pressure on these global allocation and global distribution mechanisms to find access to the doses and find access to the right doses. So the tension is live. It's playing out every hour of every day in, in the world. Tanya, I'm curious, what's been the role of influencers in uh, in this campaign? I know it's certainly been important in previous ones, hasn't it? Yeah, no, absolutely. As we reflect back all the way to the polio campaign in, in the U.S., where we had uh, Elvis Presley uh, taking um, a polio vaccine on national TV, or most uh, recently in northern Nigeria, where we've had the Emir of Kano giving the polio vaccine to children. I think in this current pandemic, what we've seen is actually the politicians. Uh, in most countries, uh, the heads of states or, or the likes have been on national TV really uh, showing, well, going first. And, and then the second group of people have really been the, the healthcare workers who have also been receiving many of the first doses and have been part of also um, building the trust in the, in, in the vaccines. I know it's hard even to say if this is the beginning of the end, the end of the beginning, or you know, nobody wants to play soothsayer, but yet we have many politicians and others out there who are already breathing a sigh of relief and, in, if anything, starting to remove some of the restrictions um, to try and stop the spread of the virus. Can, can you give us some sense as to where we are and, and should we be basically optimistic at this point? So, Diane, I, I'm an optimist, right? But I do think it is too early to say it is the beginning of the end because there is still so many twists and turns that actually could happen. But what is a fact and what you start seeing happening in certain environments is actually that the vaccine does reset our relationship with the pandemic. Tanya, thoughts on that, especially somebody who's studied other public health campaigns. Anything that surprised you about this one? No, I mean, I'm an optimist, like leaving on this point as well. And I, but I would say, you know, when we take some of the low and middle income countries, I think we have to acknowledge that the starting point for many of those countries is that um, COVID-19 isn't the largest killer in those countries. Um, and there are many, many uh, other priorities. And I think, you know, if nothing else, the pandemic has certainly brought health security and the importance of investing into strong health systems to the forefront of the of the political debate, but also the, the general debate amongst the population. And so as we continue to jointly fight this pandemic, I think we'll also in many countries see a continued heightened awareness um, and focus on, on healthcare at large. And hopefully that means that we will not just tackle the disease burden of, of COVID, but many of the other big killers in the world that we that we still have today, whether that's uh, malaria, TB, um, HIV, etc. So it's such an excellent point, Tanya. And while 
Of course, a lot still needs to be said and written about the journey of adoption of, of vaccines and their protection. I do hope that relatively fast, the fact that the most vulnerable will be protected from severe disease and that allows communities to to find balanced solutions where the direct impact of COVID is balanced with the indirect impact of COVID, which also has been enormous. The impact on psychological disorders, the impact on mental health, the impact on the broader health challenges, right? The incredible health backlog that is building up in, in, in many communities, the undiagnosed cancer treatments, the difficult social situations, the difficult situations in households leading to an increase of abuse in many settings, many, many, many elements of the indirect effects of COVID. And if anything, if the vaccines can already help us reset that balance a little bit in the next couple of weeks and months, then that will be major progress in its own right. What lessons do you think we'll take from this or have you taken from this? Well, the the key lesson that I have taken and I think that I hope that the world has also taken is that um, collaboration really matters. We have brought these vaccines to market, to patients faster than any other public health intervention that we have ever seen before. And we can still do better and I'm convinced that we will do better. So as the world starts to evaluate what we've done well, what we could have done better. I'm very, very hopeful that for the next potential outbreak pandemic, um, that we will respond faster at an even larger scale. But um, I think the underpinning learning from this is that it took collaboration between many different kinds of stakeholders um, to get to where we are today. Tanya, I could not agree more. I was in a different setting the other day and someone uh, was asked, what does COVID stand for for them? And they said, there's a reason COVID starts with co, it's the co of collaboration. (laughs) Nothing of what we have seen, not the fast development, not the manufacturing scale up, not the delivery that's happening now with all of its challenges would have been possible without, without collaboration, collaboration between innovators, collaboration within a country, collaboration between countries. And so we can only hope, I can only hope that that is what we'll take away. We'll build this stronger, more collaborative global health system and ecosystem as a result of this. I think we should never forget that this has been a massive humanitarian strategy that we've all lived through, frankly, all over the world uh, since the beginning of, of 2020. And it has taken a massive toll on people's mental health. People have lost their jobs. People are missing the most basic things of being able to give a hug to your parents, to your loved ones. And so as much as part of this discussion, of course, becomes technical we talk about the excitement of science and responsibility of speed and et cetera. I think we should never forget that this is also an opportunity for us to transition into the next normal. We talk about the economic impact from people and businesses going down under, but there is also the human impact, the mental health, the other pieces of what makes our life valuable that I think we are only starting to see scratching, frankly, the surface of those And so that's also one of the reasons for the importance of this vaccine work. Mm -hmm. Levin? Yeah, my message, Diane, would be think ahead every day or every week that we can actually reach protection of the vulnerable and hopefully reach herd immunity. That will be the end of the pandemic. And that is so important, not just because of the lives that are directly affected by COVID, which has amounted to an incredible toll in the last year, but also for all the indirect effects, right? My wife is a pediatrician and the number of times she comes home with really dramatic stories about situations in which children find themselves as a result of the lockdown measures, as a result of the mental health implications, it is tragic. And that is, I think, what should keep us all going to try to do this as fast as we can, to scale this as fast as we can, to actually try to alleviate that human suffering. 
Lee, when as you were talking, I did hear occasional sounds of children playing. What I think about is to get this next generation and the children playing again back to school. Hope really is, I think, such an important driver in society. Levin, Tanya, thank you very much for sharing your insights during a difficult time and a difficult time to certainly make predictions. So thank you for joining us. Thank you. Thank you, Diane. That was Levin van der Vieken and Tanya Zulu-Holt. If you'd like to read more information about what they've been doing, please do check out their article on McKinsey.com. I'm Diane Brady. See you next time. Thank you for joining us. You've been listening to the McKinsey Podcast. To learn more about McKinsey, our people and our latest thinking, visit us at mckinsey.com or find us on LinkedIn, Twitter and Facebook.